Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. You're listening to Mark and A.J. on 540 Sports Talk New York, WLIE. And welcome back to WLIE 540 AM Sports Talk New York. Had I known what you just disclosed a little while ago, I would have had Howie, had Howie say Mark and Chip. Well, right? that's, that's, that's been a long time. It's been a long that, time. That was, that was my gnome to play-by-play. Gnome to play-by-play. Wow. We just lost whatever audience we had with that line, AJ. <laughs> All right. Joining us now is the man whose grandfather was the first voice Met fans heard back in 1962 when the Mets played their initial spring training game, an 8 nothing loss to the St. Louis Cardinals. The first announcer, you know, people don't really know this, to greet listeners of the game's radio broadcast wasn't Ralph Kiner, Bob Murphy, or Lindsey Nelson. Instead, the first voice coming out of the radio belonged to none other than Howard Cosell, the host of Clubhouse Journal, a pre- and post-game show. All these years later, if you attend a home Met game at City Field, the first voice you hear over the PA speaker is his grandson. It is a thrill to welcome the man who is a three-time Emmy Award winner, current PA announcer for the New York Mets, Colin Cosell, to WLIE Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Colin. Thank you so much. That was quite the intro. And also, I'm still I'm, I'm in love with the, uh, the nom de play-by-play. <laughs> you and AJ's family, and that is it. <laughs> I thought that was great. Yeah. Uh, before we talk about your career, I have to ask you something that has bothered me for years. The NFL Hall of Fame has an award similar to the Ford Frick Award. It's called the Pete Rozelle Radio-Television Award. It was created in 1989, and it was named for the longtime late NFL commissioner, Pete Roselle. It's bestowed annually by the Pro Football Hall of Fame for long-time exceptional contributions to radio and television in professional football. Howard Cosell is the man who put football on the map with Monday Night Football as far as television goes, yet that award has been given out 29 times, and not once has it been awarded to your grandfather. First, how is that even possible, and is that something that bothers you and your family? It's actually funny you should mention that. I started a, a little bit of an online movement um, called, uh, you know, Howard Cosell and the uh, uh, NFL HOF, or the football HOF. And um, in doing so, I talked with Frank Gifford before he had passed away, and, of course, Joe Horgan, who uh, oversees the Hall of Fame itself. And he said, you know, he gave me kind of, uh, I'm going to say it was a schlock response. Um, I, I have a feeling he's been kind of blackballed um, and blacklisted uh, from the uh, the Hall of Fame. And to be honest with you, I believe he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame proper as well as get the Pete Rozelle Award. Because no the NFL, the actual NFL or the uh, Football Hall of Fame proper, part of their criteria is uh, someone who helps the advancement of the sport of football in a, uh, in a noticeable or, uh, in, in, uh, you know, just incomprehensible way. Um, not, and not those words. I'm exhausted after a three-game okay. series that included a 15, <laughs> well, 15 runs innings, over the yeah. last two innings. Four, announcing um, 42 batters for the Washington Nationals would do it. Yeah. And doing them with their nicknames, but we can get back to that in a minute. That was, it was quite the day. Um, but uh, I, I believe under that criteria uh, that, that my grandfather belongs to be in both. And, um, you know, it was just a, a lot of... Uh, talk a lot of yes and no no action 
um, out of Joe Horgan and the uh, the Hall of Fame. And it got to the point where I, I started to see what was going on with uh, the NFL, the direction it's been going. Uh, I believe fans have been catching on to that as well, and it's noticeable in, in ratings and in attendance um, that, you know what, it's, it's just not worth it. Like, does he belong in there for the sake of history? Yes. Do I think he'll get there one day? He's going to have to. But is it at the top of my list? No, because the NFL and what my grandfather saw happening with it, it's all coming to fruition. It's all coming um, to, to life and reality. And my grandfather foresaw that, and I said, you know what? It, it, if it's going to resolve itself, it'll resolve itself. I'm not going to waste my time. You know, my exactly. favorite Howard Cosell play-by-play is not football or baseball. You know what my favorite Howard Cosell play is? Boxing? Boxing. No, the movie Bananas. Oh, oh yes. That, oh, that's El Presidente. Holy <laughs> <laughs> yeah, revolution. It's so funny because AJ and I grew up on Howard Cosell. He's a big part of our youth. He started as a lawyer. After the war, um, as he began practicing in law in Manhattan, primarily union law, some of his clients were actors. Some were athletes, including Willie Mays. As well, interestingly enough, we were talking about before with Ed Vosberg about Little League. You know, He also represented Little League of New York. In 1953, ABC radio manager asked him to host a show on New York's flagship. WABC featuring Little League participants. The show marked the beginning of a relationship with ABC and ABC Radio that would last his entire career. He passed away when you were 15. How much of your of his career were you aware of, and how much of that inspired you to go into the sports broadcasting field? You've done your research. You are, uh, you're on top of your game. Um, well, my grandfather, uh, when I was about five years old, my grandfather had a house in West Hampton Beach. And uh, they had a line uh, directly to ABC Radio from the house so that when he was away, he could record his 60-second uh, speaking of sports bit. I'm sorry, speaking of everything. No, yeah. sports. Yeah. One of the two. Um, yes. And, uh, and so he would uh, wake up in the morning, grab the newspaper, uh, circle a couple things, get on his headset. And by the way, the, um, the, the headphones and uh, microphone were in his bedroom about five feet away from his bed. So all he'd have to do is grab a paper, sit down, do his thing, and I realized that I was enamored with this idea. So I'd have my grandmother wake me up, and I'd go and sit on his lap, and I'd put on the headphones, and I'd talk to his producer named Eddie, and sometimes my grandfather would have a meltdown because the technology was new and didn't always work. Um, and, uh, but I knew, all I knew is I loved the idea of this. I loved the idea of doing research and talking to a microphone and conveying information and, and interacting with an audience in, in that way. Um, so I, it was something I knew I always wanted to do, and I knew something was special about my grandfather because it's not every day that you walk down the street with an older relative and people are yelling their name and wanting their autograph and shake their hand. Uh, so I knew he was big. Um, when he passed away, obviously, I spoke at his memorial service, and uh, looking out at that crowd, I, I was blown away by the people that were there who were influenced and affected by him and he was friends with. Um, from you know sports legends to politicians uh, and, and just all over the entertainment industry. And, uh, and then in college, while studying to be a broadcaster, I was taught uh, incorrect information about my grandfather from a professor, corrected him. He told the, he adamantly said, no, I know this to be true. I, uh, I corrected him and told him why I knew I was right <laughs> and uh, had kind of a nervous breakdown when I got home that I was being taught in college <laughs> about my grandfather. So. Wow. Right. Um, that's when I realized how big he, he was. Um, and uh, it made me shy away from the industry for a while. It scared me. Uh, I did myriad other things uh, except for sports broadcasting and, and anything in sports. Um, and then luckily I wisened up at the end of my, uh, my 20s and, 
it's led to, to where I am now about a decade later. So, so interesting you mentioned that. It's interesting you mentioned that because you're shying away for that because yeah. there's, I don't know if you guys ever watched uh, Monk, you know, with Tony yeah, Chalupa, and, and yeah. that line kind of resonates. Like, I have to imagine having the last name Cosell, wanting to go into sports industry is both a blessing and a curse. Yeah. So I, I can see that. You look at the landscape of sports media today, I can only imagine what your grandfather, and it was in his amazing book, I Never Played the Game, where he popularized the word jockocracy, which was originally coined by uh, Robert Lipsack, described how athletes were given announcing jobs that they had not earned. What do you think he would make of today's media, ESPN, Twitter, everything? Uh, I think he would be disgusted with it. I think he'd be disgusted with phones in general, how the art of the conversation is being lost on these generations that are, you know, transfixed by a glowing computer that's, you know, pocket-sized. Um, I believe that uh, he would be disgusted with both um, uh, both aspects, uh, almost all aspects of broadcasting these days. It has become very cookie-cutter. It has become very safe. It has become very boring, except for the, the classics who actually had some personality or have sort of carte blanche to stir the pot a little bit, uh, but they're all starting to retire and pass away. Uh, he might have actually come around a little bit more to the idea of the jockocracy, as he uh, coined it, um, because now the athletes are being taught. They're not going straight from the field to the booth. You know, they're having kind of a, a boot camp, um, and, uh, and they're a little better and more refined and actually do inject that personality that has been lost from the play-by-play -play, uh, announcer. Um, but, uh, and they're a little more intelligent than they were. But I think overall, um, right down to field reporters, um, the pregame shows with 72 uh, athletes and reporters and anchors uh, all just arguing with each other with inane drivel for three hours before <laughs> it's even the pregame show, I think you'd be disgusted. You know, talking about jackocracy, your grandfather was replaced for the 1985 World Series broadcast by Tim McCarver, himself a former baseball player who would go on to have a very good baseball career and was very intelligent. You know, and you had the opportunity to introduce him when he was getting inducted into the Sportscasters Hall of Fame, and you did a dead-on impression. You know, yeah. Billy Crystal couldn't do it, it, a better job. It was dead-on. Spot on. Uh, about your grandfather talking about jackocracy. Could you? I, I know you're probably you have no voice left, but could you share a little bit of, of you doing your grandfather's voice? Oh, of course. I mean, I, when you uh, mentioned the movie Bananas, I instantly my <laughs> right, my yeah. brother and I love imitating my grandfather around the house, and I do it so well it freaks my mom out sometimes. Um, for instance, my grandfather called my mother, whose name's Jill, called her Jillsy, and he'd call across the house and he'd go Jillsy just like that, and I'll do that, and it freaks her out. Um, but with, uh, with bananas, for instance, when it was uh, El Presidente, when did you know it was over? <laughs> wow. That's scary. That, that is scary, for sure. It, it's interesting that your foundation for sports and media was a lot stronger than your grandfather's growing up. You were a goalie on your high school hockey team. You played soccer. You also could sing. Uh, you performed in West Side Story and other musicals in high school. How much of having that foundation helped you you know, for your career in, in broadcasting? Uh, it, you know, that's, that's, that's interesting, because when people say, you know, it's, uh, it's great that you followed in the, you know, it's footsteps and legacy and what have you, um, but, uh, you know, are, are you trying to be the next Howard Cosell? And um, I'm like, no, he, you know, he, he was a lawyer, he was a wordsmith, and he was also the smartest human being I've ever encountered in my life. Uh, I'm, 
a ham. I'm a goofball. <laughs> I, you know, I, I did musical theater actually beyond college. I did it professionally for a couple of years as well. Um, I love an audience uh, of, of any capacity. So um, also, when you're younger, you don't really have the opportunity to uh, do any sports-related announcing or anything. Your outlets are, are typically uh, theater and a local theater troupe or a little tape recorder at home where you pretend to do a radio show. And so I, I did both of those things. Um, this leads into college where, you know, when I had that meltdown about my grandfather, I also, <clears throat> excuse me, as my voice goes, um, I also delved into stand-up comedy for a bit. Um, for a while, actually, ended up producing shows for a long time um, and did everything I could to have an audience. I was a radio anchor and reporter and DJ and, um, and all, everything else uh, that I could do other than sports uh, because I was afraid of, uh, how intelligent he was, and I was going to look dumb. And then I realized I could be my own personality. I could be more comedic. I could have more fun with it. Um, you know, and I even try to inject a little bit of that into my PA announcing um, because, you know, wanted, I feel it, it shouldn't be too robotic, you know. Uh, it, it, there should be some energy to it, and there should be some life to it. Uh, so I think with that as my background, um, you know, that's, that's what's influenced me and turned me into the, the announcer that I am today, um, as opposed to my grandfather, who is just a massive sports fan with an incredible vocabulary and an uncanny gift of gab. It's, How hard and different was it for you to go from being sports broadcasting and doing shows on MSG Varsity and working for Fios One to actually being a public address announcer? I mean, it's, it's really a very different craft and skill. It really is. Um, and it's something because for years I've wanted to get back into radio, and I, you know, I just, it, I, I, I was too drawn to um, television at that point. I guess I'd been lured in, um, and to be honest, the money was a little better. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm a newlywed. I'm trying to make a, a living at the same time and follow my passion. Uh, but I would say the thing is, it it kind of marries everything together. It's like being on the radio, but you're live and your audience who's listening to that, that radio speaker are right in front of you. And you're describing what's going on in the game. So it's this perfect amalgamation. And that's why I, I didn't realize it was a dream job until I got it. And once I was comfortable, I think it was by my third game, uh, and it was a Tuesday, June 5th, against the uh, Baltimore Orioles, that in the middle of it, I you know kind of started to well up because it suddenly hit me like, this is what I meant to do. Wow. You know, it's also interesting. I, I want to take one step back because you mentioned a lot of the things you did. And you were actually an intern on Saturday Night Live, which is another one of those full circle life moments. As in the fall of 1975, your grandfather hosted a show called Saturday Night Live with Howard Cosell on ABC. It was an hour-long variety show broadcast <coughs> from the Ed Sullivan Theater. And, it, you know, it, not to be confused with the Saturday Night Live that you did, which actually when it premiered, the original title was NBC Saturday Night, and that was to avoid confusion with your grandfather's show. Your grandfather also hosted the 1984-1985 season finale of SNL. So I'm wondering first what you did at, as an intern at SNL, and did you have the opportunity to talk to Lorne Michaels about your grandfather hosting the show? Okay, so I, um, I worked in the talent department, so we did everything from... 
uh, wrangling and taking care of all of our extras to um, guiding the uh, and taking care of and tending to the needs of our music guests and guest hosts. Um, and then, you know, just office organization stuff with, uh, with headshots and, uh, and, and the uh, forthcoming show. Um, so it was very hands-on, got to be on the, the stage floor, um, and it, it was one of the greatest experiences of my, uh, of my adult life and of my life um, in general. Um, so um, I did not get to talk to Lauren about it. Uh, all that much. I met him very briefly. Um, he said, you know, I, was, I loved your grandfather, and that was it. Um, he's very kind of reclusive and sticks with his circle of people and doesn't, like, fraternize otherwise. He just he does his thing. He's a creature of habit. Um, that being said, I was able to acquire a copy of, the, uh, of that episode of my grandfather being on the show. And the best part about it, the, the bitter and brilliant and almost hilarious irony of it all is the fact that Saturday Night Live, when they start their show, it's uh, live from New York, it's Saturday night. And the reason they say that is because they couldn't infringe on my grandfather's show, Saturday Night Live. Right. And once they started, uh, Lauren Michaels believed in continuity. It was like, that's it. That's how we start our show. <laughs> so it was actually my grandfather's show that lasted like a few months. <laughs> um, influenced one of the longest running shows in the history of television, which I find entertaining and, and hilarious and amazing. Absolutely. You know, New York has such a rich history with public address announcers. Bob Shepard did more than 4,500 Yankees baseball games over a period of 56 years. For more than a half a century, he was also the voice of Giants football games. John F.X. Condon, the voice of Madison Square Garden for 42 seasons. His trademark greeting, uh, Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Madison Square Garden. Would start the day or the night off for, for many Nick and Ranger games. So first off, what is the skill set required to be a great PA announcer? And what was the key to their success that gave them such longevity in that position? Um, well, I can't tell you that because I know for a fact that I'm not a great PA announcer. Uh, I don't want people to be confused by my... Uh, like, this is what I was meant to do. I, I feel that way, um, but I'm still a work in progress. Like, I, I listen to um, games from even a month ago, and I'm finding my voice still. And uh, it's really going to be up to the fans themselves uh, if I'm a great PA announcer. Um, someone who is proficient at their job, however, uh, which I do feel I am, the skill set it, it involves um, awareness, uh, a crowd sensitivity, um, uh, you know the, the the vibe of the game. For instance, today it we had um, I was announcing the players' nicknames each time they came up to bat. By the ninth inning, it, the game was such a blowout, and that's such a lighthearted thing. It was just like you know you you take your foot off the gas a little bit because the wind is out of everyone's sails. I don't detract from the people's names. It was just taking out the middle names, you know. Um, so it, it's it's stuff like that. Um, also, being able to read uh, copy. Uh, at a relatively fast rate. For instance, we do the MLB game breaks, and I'm given that copy sometimes just before I have to read it um, to, you know, 30, well, today 23, but uh, 30 to 40,000 people, um, and, and do it without stumbling, do it uh, without mispronouncing something. And, um, and so being able to do that with no rehearsal, of course I do try to rehearse uh, everything before I say it, sometimes upwards to two or three times, um, maybe even five if it's really tough, but, uh, uh, but being able to do it on the fly and, and execute it without any stumbles is, um, is, is another one. So 
Uh, it's just, and also being savvy uh, to the game, understanding the inner workings of the game, uh, getting to know the other team and how the manager works. Joe Madden, for instance, is a micromanager to the nth degree, and he was working, he was managing my very first game on Saturday, June 2nd, against the Chicago Cubs when it went 14 innings. And I learned, I mean, I, I grew up, uh, you know, understanding the difference between AL and NL, but the inner workings of it and the double switch and having to identify that and as well have, you know, an MLB game break thrown at you um, to multitask and be aware of the inner workings of the game and the teams you're up against uh, and situations um, like they're going to bring in a lefty to face this guy and, and so on. Um, so, you know, it's, there, there are a few things. Um, you know, it's not just reading words off a, a piece of paper. I could have put that very simply. <laughs> you know, I mean, so Bob Shepard basically was the voice of God. Right. And because he'd been yeah. very straight in everything he did. How much freedom or how restricted do the Mets you know, have you and say you, you can do this or you can't do this? And how, you know, it sounds like you're doing something very, very different than, of course, Bob Shepard. How much of this is God about what Mets you can and can't do? I, I So basically, I can do. Again, this, this relates to the, you know, the vibe of the crowd and where we're at in the game um, in the sense that uh, they wanted me to find my voice. You know, they liked what I had to offer and wanted to see where it would go. So I try to bring an energy um, that is it's not typical of baseball. Maybe it is in, you know, now, nowadays, uh, but with the baseball I grew up with, it was all you know, now betting, so on and so forth. <laughs> and... You know, Bob Shepard did it, but it was iconic, um, and but he's, he's a prime example. Um, he just had such a beautiful voice. It was so mellifluous and just so wonderful on the ears, and it, it, it was the voice of God, because it had that bit of bass to it, but it also had, like, the comfort of a grandfather. Like, it hugged you, you know? Um, so that's what set him apart. Uh, and he also just, he sounded smart. He sounded like he knew everything that was going on, even though he was just saying a name and a number. Um, so I think that's, that's what set him apart. And, uh, uh, you know, that's, I don't know, that, that, that's not what I aspire to do because it's a different, it's a different game altogether. Um, but uh, especially, you know, with, uh, if your team isn't doing well, you, you want to raise the energy level a little bit, at least during the starting lineups, to at least have that energy going where there's that positivity and you're all on the same page. It's interesting you say that because, uh, you know, people that listen to the show know that my son works for the Mets and, and is part of putting together the game day and, and things that go up on the scoreboard and, and that whole show that's around the game. And, I, you know, so I pay more attention to it. And, and the PA announcer might be one of the most overlooked jobs. Even that whole department might be one of the most overlooked jobs in all of baseball. But it's so important to that game day atmosphere. And, and it's right. He has yeah. to gauge what's going on in the crowd. It, it, it's very interesting. Um, well, you know what? I actually, I, I, think, um, I think the fans, Mets fans in particular, um, are very hands-on with their team. They, they know everyone down to bullpen catchers. Um, so they're, they're very, and I try to interact with them as much as possible because I know that Alex was there for a long time, right. and they were used to his voice and you know, change, especially while the team is having such an adverse uh, and tumultuous season. Uh, you know, it's just everything just feels off and wrong. So I've made a point of you know, opening my window. I want to talk to the fans. I want to um, react, uh, us to react off each other. 
Um, and so I, I think, you know, I don't know. That, that's just the way I, I interpret my job and the way I, I want it to be um, with, with the fans and, and that, kind of, um, that kind of vibe. Okay, as long as I have you on the phone, and I'm going to be heading down to Mets Fantasy Camp in January, I have to ask this. How would you introduce Mark Roseman, number 11, batting third for the New York Mets? Uh, so Mark Roseman. Uh, Rosenman. No, sorry. Rosenman, R-O-S-E-N-M-A-N. Roseman, I'm sorry. Right, number 11, batting third for the New York Mets. Uh, and your position? Uh, third base. Uh, it would be the third baseman, number 11, Mark Roseman. <laughs> Colin, that you know, Josh is going to be. Josh is good. I'm going with my son, Josh. Uh, he he'd be pissed if I don't ask for him. I don't know what position he's going to be. He, he let's can't put pitch, him in. We he pitch. can't pitch, even well, though we'll put him as a. Well, he'd be he's third base. He's also third base. He's also third base. So, so we might as well do one for him too, and he'd probably back cleanup. So he, he's number thirteen, and uh, you know we'll put him at third base also. Give and us one for Josh. Rosenman? Yeah, Rosenman. Josh Rosenman. Yeah. Rosenman. Yes. Yeah. Number number thirteen. Um, all right, and I'm sorry, he was playing third base as well. Yeah, he'll play third base as well. Okay, what the hell? Batting cleanup, the third baseman, number thirteen, Josh Rosenman. Wow, he, he got my, he got a lot more love than I did on right. that. Wow, good yeah. stuff, Colin. Well, you gave it that kind of build up. Yeah. I had to. Uh, Colin. Yo, thanks, number one, for my new ringtone on my phone. I uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, really appreciate it, and and the you know. What I want to say is we want to have you back the day that your grandfather makes it into Canton in the NFL Hall of Fame. And that's, done and done. That, that's what we look forward to. Thank you so much for your time tonight. More importantly, thanks for adding to the atmosphere at City Field. Even though, like you said, it hasn't been the season we expected, but it's still a great day out at the ballpark every time you can get out there. Well, I got to tell you, thank you, and thank you for the kind words. And I want to thank the Mets fans who have – uh, actually embraced me and have given me a chance. It's been uh, an, an honor. It is. It's an honor to go to work and to um, be amidst this fan base and to address such loyal, passionate, um, amazing, and away from the ballpark, hardworking, good-hearted human beings. I mean, we're all New York sports fans here. So, yeah, we're all animals, but our heart's in the right place. And to be a part of a major New York sports team, and especially one with such an amazing fan base as the New York Mets is an honor and a privilege, and I just hope uh, one day I get to be, uh, I can call myself the, the Bob Shepard of City Field or just the Colin Cosell of the New York Mets. Love it. Thanks so much. Colin Cosell, the public address voice of the New York Mets.